Hello and welcome to the Canadian Wargamer Podcast. Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature wargames and the occasional hex and counter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foy d'Arabla die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. Hey everybody, welcome to Back from the Dead, episode 24 of the Canadian Wargamer podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm James. James, we're talking about Kriegspiels tonight. It's going to be very exciting. Um, are. It is. I'm excited. Because you and I are uh, Kriegspiel veterans, thanks to our guest, Wendy DeWolf. Wendy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, we um, Now it can be told, as they say... Uh, the story OPSEC has come off. That's right. Yeah, the story of an epic uh, campaign that was done yes. pretty much entirely virtually, and you were the mastermind, and we are so grateful. It was a lot of fun. So amazing fun for me too. Yeah, and I just found out that my friend here was like the freaking Prussian commander in chief. He was. <laughs> yes. I was. What? Yeah. When I when I read when I read my briefing, you know, it's like real life had gotten in the way. Yeah. And I'm like, oh shit, you know, first orders are in like tonight. I gotta like read up on this. I was like, I'm what? <laughs> That's where it all went wrong. So oh, oh yeah. Like, you know, I should I I really should have had a had a you know council of war with my with my other commanders and stuff and outlined some objectives and yeah, all that crap. Well, but I'm well, like, we'll, ah! we'll get into the weeds in just a minute. But first, Wendy, we're really happy that you're on the podcast. Why don't you um uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, you, who you are, your bio, your wargaming bio, um, your whatever you want to tell us. Uh, well, uh, my name's Wendy DeWolf, as you've said, and um, for my wargaming bio, it goes way back to um, uh, Warhammer 40,000 uh, and then Warhammer Fantasy Battle way back in the uh, early 90s. Okay. Uh, which led, I started playing that, and I've always been big in historical games and history in general. And uh, I wanted to use those rules very quickly to uh, play, you know, World War II and um, Napoleonics and stuff like that. But my friends, uh, they were totally into the science fiction and fantasy, so that never happened. But then I joined the Army, and... uh, one of the first things that happened in the army was uh, I met some historical gamers who were playing um, uh, Battles for Empire, which is a very old uh, rule set nowadays. It's long yes. gone, but um, it was it was uh, what they were playing, and uh, that was my first taste of historical games. And I never played another fantasy or sci-fi game again after that. Oh. So. And I played uh, war games uh, 
here in Ottawa at the Ottawa Minter Gamers uh, Club. Mm-hmm. Um, right up until uh, late nineties, um, when I you know had kids and got married and all that kind of well the other got married then had kids and uh, then uh, the war came along and that took up all my time um, playing war games for real I guess and then uh, we're talking about the Afghan war right yeah yeah um, initiative on a leopard tank <laughs> yeah good question um but yeah then I got back from all that and uh my son who um He's 13 now. Mm-hmm. He found out that I used to do war games and then he was at me to uh, do war games with him. And uh, so he got me back into it oh, that's a few years ago. So Good for him. Yeah. Well done, young man. <laughs> <laughs> mm. and so he, he, he wants to do historicals. Yes. He's not interested in uh, science fiction or um fantasy at all in fact he doesn't even want to do uh, western gunfights or anything it's just military 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 that kid he's got army on the brain so <laughs> naturally yeah yeah. And, yeah it makes buying him a present easy so <laughs> you need your army this you know now well i'd like a brigade of you know grenadiers of the guard it's like okay yeah. Yeah, exactly. What, uh, what, what scale are, are, are mom and son doing? Well, his favorite is 20 millimeter. He likes um, 172nd plastic a lot because he's very big on uh, realistic proportions. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like the lead figures because uh, of the cartoony proportions. So uh, I have convinced him to try like Perry and yeah. stuff like that. Um, but he's really big on the 172nd plastics. So well, that's where a lot of World started. War II using rapid fire, hmm. um, which is the set he likes. We tried a few, but he's he likes them because they're kind of simple. And they, um, even though they're big battle rules, I mean, like you're moving battalions and things like that around. And, uh, it feels like a skirmish game. Yeah, the Italian has like I don't know ten figures in it. Yeah, yeah. You're so worried about you know guys with friend guns and throwing hand grenades when this yeah ten or twenty figures is you know a whole battalion. Yeah, "Hmm." that's always what I found weird about rapid fire rules though is that it you actually do have rules for like hand grenades and stuff even though it's and I I think the the people who like it like it. Yeah, yeah, you know that's what they like about it. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about your military career? Oh well, I joined the uh, the reserves in high school. There was actually a co-op program at my high school. Um, I was in the second year of it, where you joined the reserves, and instead of going to class, you went to the armories and did basic training full time. Hmm. Um, so that was a lot of fun. So I had a sixteen week um basic training the only thing was at night we went home and uh on the weekends we were at home unlike you know if i had gone to cornwallis 
Yes. But otherwise, it was pretty much the same, uh, which was pretty great. I had a lot of fun in that. And I'd been considering the military career, and that just sold me on it. I had so much fun. Mm. I was in the uh, Queen's York Rangers, which is a, a armored recce unit. Um, mm. There's two squadrons, one in Toronto and one in Aurora. I was up in Aurora mm-hmm. at the time, and uh, I was there for a couple of years. And then um, one summer when I was uh, teaching uh, QL3 Armored on the Matawa Plain in Petawawa, I had been trying to do a transfer to the Reg Force, and I, I got told by my course warrant that uh, I had to jump in the van with him and go do something. We went up to the RCD lines, and he was like, you got to get your cap badge and all that because uh, you're going to be in RCD now. And I was really excited. <laughs> and uh, so that was that was where I went next. I was in the RCDs, and I, I did two basic engagements there, uh, went to Bosnia, Mm. Uh, did the aid to civil power with the Red River flood back in 96. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, the 90s were much like today, a really dark time in the, uh, in the Canadian forces. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no movement, like no one was getting promoted. The whole, my six years there, one guy got promoted to master corporal. Um, my first three years, we'd have been on a pay freeze since the seventies. So I was making 400 bucks a month. <laughs> yeah. When I, when that ended and I got double my pay, I felt rich, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so yeah, I got out, I got out after that and um, pretty much immediately regretted it. I mm. uh, went back to the reserves that wasn't enough. So then I started working on getting back into the regular army and um, they had lost my file at the, at the armory somewhere. Oh. So I was just like in limbo for a few years. And then uh, after nine 11 happened, I went into high gear trying to get back in because um, that was my big chance. You know, that was the whole reason I joined the military was because I wanted to go to war and do it for real. Sure. Um, so I started really pushing and, uh, luckily enough for me, they, they were cleaning out the head shed at the armories and, uh, behind a filing cabinet, they found my file at long last. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> so, uh, so I got back into the, uh, in the regular force and I was funnily enough armor was closed at the time so I went infantry and I went out to um, Wainwright to do my QL3 infantry course with the PPCLI um, and about halfway through I got pneumonia uh-huh. so I was uh, off the course and waiting on Pat Platoon for the next course to begin when armor opened up again. So I said, well, I would prefer to be armored. Uh, and I, so I did a, I changed my trade back to armor and went back to the RCD, luckily enough. 
I was really worried that I was going to have to be a dirty strat, which uh, no offense to them, but <laughs> they're like the rivals of the RCDs, you know, so mm-hmm. I was always very, very proud to be an RCD. Still am. Just yeah. um, for the to the Armored Corps, in my opinion, but uh, yeah, I went back to the RCD and uh, I uh, went to Afghanistan in 2005 to Kabul. And uh, that was quite an experience. I bet. Um, it was sort of a training for what we were going to do next, though, because my next tour was 2007 when oh. we were down to Kandahar for full-on war operations. It was I was Roto-1 of uh, Task Force you know, 107 in uh, Kandahar right after the uh, guys had finished Manageway. We relieved them, and it was a really, really uh, intense tour. The Af- uh, the Taliban was surging, uh, trying to regain the lost ground that they lost in uh, in um, the Panjway operations, and it was pretty much my first three months was straight combat every single day. Um, we had a, we had a, what we called the tick troops in contact. Um, usually it was IEDs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was only two or three days, uh, when we didn't find a IED one way or another. Um, but there was also the other stuff, uh, rocket attacks and whatnot, um, First time I saw the Taliban was uh, maybe a week into uh, my tour. And um, that was an eye opener. I was in recce. I was in the brigade recce squadron. And I was a gunner in a Coyote, which is a uh, eight-wheeled armored car. And um, I was woken up in the middle of the night by my crew commander who yelled something in my face and uh, I had no idea what what he even said because I was still like half asleep and it's so dark you can't see your hand in front of your face um, so he he just runs out of the bunker um, and I wasn't sure what the hell was going on I couldn't find my my uh, uniform uh, Ended up just grabbing my boots, grabbing my rifle, grabbing my flak jacket and helmet, running across the compound like that. Went to climb on my vehicle. My vehicle's gone. Where the hell did that go? Um, I guess that's probably what he was yelling at me, that they were moving the vehicle. So then I ran across the compound because I spotted some coyotes over there. Sure enough, that's where they'd moved to, climbed in. Found out that uh, they had seen some people approaching our camp, and by camp I mean I wasn't even in a fob. We were on this hill called Gundy Gar, and uh, basically we rolled in there and dug holes um, in the ground and lived in them for three months on iron rations the whole time. Oof. 
didn't have a shower at all because the only way you could have a shower was if you saved up your drinking water to use it and that was impossible mm. <laughs> there was, there, we were rationing water as it was because quite often convoys couldn't get in because they would get hit by ids or whatnot so anyway uh, i'm looking through my my ir site and i'm watching this patrol come down the road towards our camp and I was sure that it had to be one of the RCR patrols because it was just like watching, you know, the, the final test on your patrolling uh, segment of your combat leadership course. It was like exactly how we would do it. Watch them come down, perfect spacing, stop at the rendezvous, form an all around defense. Then, you know, the patrol leader and the two IC get up beetle on down to the objective. They do their, their little cloverleaf search of the objective, beetle back to the patrol, see them all talking away there. You know, it was just like exactly how we would do it. And I kept on calling up to the CP, are, are you sure that this isn't an art, this isn't a patrol? Like these aren't our guys? Cause we were ready to light them up. And the last thing I wanted to do was light up some of my own guys, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're watching them and called like three times up at the CP and like, no, we got no one out there. We got no one out there. All of a sudden, something blows up as they're uh, messing around on the objective. What they were doing was they were setting up some rockets to, um, on a timer to fire at, at our camp. And uh, one of them went off Oops. while they were doing it. It was very sad, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so uh, yeah, that was something else. Wow. Uh, but I we didn't see you, any you knew, weapons, so we didn't shoot at them. Oh. We were on our training. It was hammered into us um, that we could not kill civilians, no matter right, what. Yeah. That yeah. was priority number one. I mean, if we had to take casualties, um, it was better for someone of on our side to get killed or wounded than to accidentally kill some civilian. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, most of the people that died were civilians because that's the way war is. But um, yeah. anyway, so at the time, uh, we didn't shoot. Later on, after we'd been more experienced, we would definitely would have shot in that situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at the time, we were hyper um vigilant about about uh killing civilians or hurting civilians we never did during the the whole tour oh that's good we killed a lot of taliban but um yeah we had some we had some shooting scrapes as well it wasn't all ieds and whatnot but um yeah when did you mind me asking how you're doing now or or are you uh, are you okay? Mostly, I mean, uh, it messes you up. Yeah. The first time I fired my weapon, I was really shaken up because I was worried that I would have hit a civilian because it was at a time when we were surrounded by civilians, <laughs> and uh, I fired a warning shot. Didn't even shoot at anybody at the at this particular instance, 
I fired a warning shot and um, I was so worried that my round would have deflected off the ground and, and hit somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up going and talking to the Padre <laughs> about that. And uh, anyway, yeah, it was, it was rough, um, but at the same time, I loved it. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, kind of funny. I mean, it's you know, one of those things. My experience, um, and I never, I, I was, I was rear party for the whole thing. Uh, I had my hand up to go up multiple times. Um, but my experience was that uh, I think pretty much everybody wanted to go. They wanted to, they wanted to test themselves. They wanted to, like you said, they wanted to see war. Nothing wrong with that. Um, and, but it, I'll tell you, every one of my friends who went, um, combatants and, and padres, they were all changed, every single one of them. Oh, yeah. And not always not always in a good way. But, no. no. Yeah, I've got a lot of friends who are seriously messed up. Yeah. Things that happened over there. Yeah. So how is... Um, <laughs> how does your military experience feed into your wargaming? Like, is it... I was just wondering, maybe you could talk a little bit about, has it like informed your, your interest in history? Has it made you more appreciative of what soldiers go through, how, how units are handled, stuff like that? It does. It does. Um, when I read about um, military history now, even when it's Napoleonic, mm-hmm. um, the 19th century is probably my my number one interest um, for history wise. Um, Us too, I would say, wouldn't you, James? Well, I don't know, I keep wandering around, but yeah, 18th century is certainly near and dear to my heart. Yeah, 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 horse and musket for sure. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, even though, you know, it's obviously very different from modern warfare, there's certain things about wars that are universal throughout history. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's things that, you know, I could sit there and talk with some Roman legionnaire about and find common ground, I'm sure. Like the Iron Russians. But, yeah. but um, very high in fiber. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unlike ours. Unlike mm-hmm. ours. Yeah. Oh, eating, eating three months on hard rations. Oh, my God. Yeah. Those things are designed to bung you up, too. Oh, they sure are. My just hung you up for a couple of weeks, and then all of a sudden, everything's coming out really. Yeah, just, just, just my one, just my one week um, elemental training course for you know the cadet instructor's cadre. Like that, that was bad enough. Of course, you know I was in my late forties by then, so probably over the hill as far as being deployed goes. Um, but it's like, yeah, I kind of realize now why, you know, reading World War II and stuff like, oh, you know, General so-and-so, like, they, they, you know, or Colonel so-and-so, they pulled him out of his regiment because he's 40 now. They consider him over the hill for leaving <laughs> infantry battalion in the middle of Italy. And it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, it's like when you're 40, things, you don't bounce as well. No, definitely not. You know, and, and yeah, living in, like, living in a foxhole and eating hard rations months on end it's like that's that's a young kids game it's like nope you gotta you gotta go back to to the divisional hq and eat some real food and you know sleep in a cot which is hard enough 
I don't even like sleeping in camp cots anymore. <laughs> yeah, they do suck. Yeah. But uh, as for how it like informs my wargaming, well, I have to admit that I find a lot of um, miniature war games rules kind of silly. <laughs> a lot of them focus on totally the wrong things. Yes. Um, hyper interested in like what kind of rifle private bloggins has um stuff like that yeah we're here interested enough in problems of command control communications and morale um when people play campaign games they don't think enough about logistics which are the number one thing and um there's a real misunderstanding of what friction is in war games. Mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of war game uh, rules writers seem to think that um, that friction is a matter of luck. Mm. But in my opinion, it's not. I mean, one of my officers once asked me to describe friction in uh, in a lecture and my explanation was is that basically friction is not luck friction is what happens when your plan rubs up against the enemy's plan that's friction that's where the problems come and uh i think you probably felt that in this game that we played because that's one of the things i like about kriegspiel they focus on what i think are the right things uh, and the most interesting things in wargaming which is command control communications and uh, there is a lot of friction because you're basically a mushroom you're, you're like fed shit and kept in the dark yeah. <laughs> no, oh and no, yes no it was like the there were there were times i was howling with frustration but it was a delicious frustration because i i even though it was frustrating, it's like I knew what you're doing and it was great. Like I actually felt like I could, uh, like I, at the time when this camp campaign started, I was reading Grushi's Waterloo mm-hmm. and you know, the great scapegoat. Oh, Grushi should have done this. Grushi should have done that. Grushi should have done the other thing. And then, you know, and I'm reading this and then playing this game is like, yeah, but roads, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, like, there's roads and bridges with limits and you can't get there from here. You know, you like Grushi can't just go herring off at a 45 degree angle to go march to the sound of the guns. He's got to go back down. You know, it's a two day trip to get around to where he needs to be, mm-hmm. you know? And, and yeah, like, so this, this, the game really helped nail that, that lesson home. Yeah. Like just trying to get anything anywhere. Yeah. Before we get into the what actually happened, let's maybe for our, our uh, listeners, um, let's just maybe just sort of set up the context. So, um, and and maybe let's just talk a little bit, Wendy, about how you you actually invited us. So a couple of podcasts ago, um, I said something about how one of the things I loved about grand kind of operational scale gaming was you know cores and divisions moving around the countryside and, um, you know, all of that kind of high level man stuff. And then out of the blue, you, you wrote to us and said, Hey, uh, if you want to do that, I've got a, a game starting. And I think 
you know, James and I were both like, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, so, you know, we were yeah, in. And uh, yeah, it was like, uh, yeah, it was like, uh, and it's funny, I just did an Arnia book study with my parish today. And it was like, when the White Witch is uh, giving Edmund uh, Turkish delight, you know, it's like, yeah, sure, please. Um, anyway. Yeah. Um, 10 months and 150 emails email exchanges later yeah so the the game you you, you set up was uh set in 1805 and it was the 1806 or 1806 that's right and uh so the french um the grand army under napoleon is invading um southern germany prussia yeah. well prussia. Invading prussia prussia right you horrible french nasty french people yeah but the, the geography is mostly the center of Germany, right? Turing, yeah. What we call yeah. Thuringia today, right? In Saxony, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we both got uh, neither, James and I sort of knew we were into this, but we made a code that we wouldn't tell each other anything. Um, so it's hard to keep. Hard to keep, yeah. Um, That's good because so, I put you on opposite sides just for that reason, because I didn't want you talking. No, that was it. That well, was, and, and I figured, even, yeah, I, I kind of figured just from something Mike said, he's, like, he's French. Well, of course. I'd be on the French side. And, but I figured even if we were on the same side, it would wreck the fog of war. Yes. If, you know, I knew that Mike was one of my corps commanders or, you know, and as, and as, it, it would ruin the effect. And as our, one of our favorite listeners, Conrad Kinch knows, uh, you give me a chance to be a Bonapartist, I'll be a Bonapartist. So, yeah. Filthy frog. I was given I was given a, a pretty plum role, a uh, uh, Davout's uh, third court. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Were you were you the fellow I chased back into the into the hills after like you came up? Did you come up? And I no. She's shaking. That, her was, Bernard, that was Bernadette. Yeah. Oh. No. I I, I did. Uh, I wandered around the countryside for days. <laughs> <laughs> well, so did I. Yeah, and I I didn't really actually. Um, when you, when you, well, okay, we're getting into the, we're getting into the, the, the grand tactics, but basically we were the French side and I, I didn't know any of the French commanders. I, I knew there was a Napoleon. And one of the things, Wendy, that I really, really loved was the, the, the atmosphere of the, that you created, right? A lot of it was, um, it was really kind of colorful little vignettes, you know, like you capture yes. old, um, Prussian courier, or you know, you your cavalry snap up some um, Prussian cavalry, and you know it was. Uh, or that's we, where all my patrols went. Yeah, yeah, I, we we captured a lot of Prussian couriers. I kept, I kept saying, okay, I want to push patrols this way, push patrols that way. I don't hear anything. No, no, like, God damn it! <laughs> we're all being paroled. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, you you did a really good job. Like sometimes I actually felt I was reading. Um, something out of Delgerfield's uh, Seven Men of Gascony or something. It was, you, you have a great command of, uh, of language. You're a great writer. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, and occasionally we would get these stirring orations from uh, Napoleon. Uh, it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. And so how many players were there in the campaign in total? Uh, well, to start with, there was uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, nine. Um, but we lost one on the first day. Oh, yeah. He got uh, his orders, um, the briefing that everyone got, 
Um, there was one for the French side, one for the Prussian side. Yeah. And uh, because neither side did a council of war, which is fine because, I mean, your orders are in the briefing. It tells you what you're supposed to be doing. Right, right. But he, he was really upset. He really was stressed out about doing the wrong thing and uh, messing up his side. And I, I tried to, you know, calm things down. Just be like, don't worry about it. Just do what it says in the, in the briefing. You'll be fine. Because um, the, the, the game starts um, when the French are just about to cross the Thuringia Mountains and enter into Saxony. Um, right. By this point, the French army has already been on the road for days and days. Mm -hmm. And uh, any council of war happened a long time before. They have their marching orders. Right. And as corps commanders, you're, you know, in command of a mini army. You have a lot of, of freedom to do what you want because Napoleon can't hold your hand. No, exactly. I think you all noticed trying to communicate at the speed of a horse is a nightmare. I mean, you can't really control right. what anyone's doing. So you give them... I learned that hard, the hard broad way. guidelines and hope they make the right decisions because it'll all be over by the time you hear about it. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that I kind of uh, assumed was that, um, you know, I'm, I'm a corps commander in the grand army, which means a certain amount of initiative is expected of me. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to act as I see fit within the broad guidelines. I'm, Trying to look for your uh, your briefing here. I know. I, I think I think I might have um, tipped my hand a little bit when I, I mentioned something to you, Mike, about about um, mission command. And, yeah. And wishing we had had it. Which you know the French had already developed mission command, but the Prussians not yet. Give them give them another six years. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Then you can have Nizau, uh Kicking things into gear. Oh God, I'd wish I had him along. This is still the Prussian army learning the hard way. So, can we talk yes. a little bit about the architecture of the game, Wendy? You are using a set of rules called Le Val d'Aigle. That's right. Right, and I'd never heard of those rules before. So, there. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, they're from a company called Partisan Press. Okay. And uh, they're written by a um, a French gentleman whose name is. Uh, Didier, uh, no, I can't pronounce French words whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, R O U Y, mm -hmm. Roy, maybe I don't know. R O U Y, Roy, Roy, Roy yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, they're written by this French gentleman. Uh, they're translated into English. Sometimes the translations can be a little bit tough to read. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to do a little deciphering on. Because I rewrote the um, briefings mm -hmm. just to make them a little clearer, hopefully. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, basically they're designed so that um, the players take on the role of corps commanders and uh, if they have corps in their army, of course, wing commanders or whatever in things like the Prussian army. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the overall one player is the overall general. And usually they would be played face to face 
in the classic Kriegspiel style where there's like a master map that the umpire has and then each of the players are in a different room with their own map mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but I uh, of course can never make that happen it takes all day to play if you do it face to face maybe even all weekend yes and, yeah, then, then you've got to cater lunch and everything it's... yeah so uh Playing by email seemed like the way to go. And uh, basically, there's two-hour turns. Um, so it, it took seven days of fighting, uh, was 47 turns. And that was, like you said, about 10 months. I mean, we're almost at the year point from when we started last year. It was, it was about uh, once a week we would get the latest update from you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. There are a few times when the turn people got their turn in very quickly, and we only get two turns in a in a week, but not often. So, yeah. just to give our our listeners a sense of the sort of thing that that we Wendy you were saying you were sending to us, this is a a dispatch from General Bertier that I got uh, on I think September or the morning of eleven September in the game. So, this day two of the game. Yeah, day two of the game. So uh, uh, for Imperial Headquarters to Davout on the Bamberg-Coburg Road, His Imperial Majesty instructs me to make you aware that Prussian cavalry of indeterminate strength have been espied south of Hof. French forces are dealing with it. It is unlikely to be the main Prussian force until we have news that it is you are to proceed as instructed in the previous dispatch, which was to head towards Salfeld, basically. There should no longer be a friendly force for you to pass through as previously indicated send patrols before you. And this is where the initiative thing comes in. His Imperial Majesty is confident that careful study of the map will lead you to deduce where there are likely to be other French forces moving forward without the need to spell it out. Uh, Waits further communication from you with great anticipation, blah, blah, blah. Do not wait for the daily dispatch should something occur. Send word immediately. France's victory is not in doubt. Only the precise manner has yet to unfold. So that was pretty cool. Like that was the kind of general tenor. Did you write that, by the way, or was that the Napoleon player? Napoleon player wrote that okay. he was brilliant with his, with yeah. his dispatches. They had so much flavor. Yeah. Um, it was incredible. Yeah. He was very well read when it comes to Napoleonic history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One time. I, I, I sometimes tried to frame my orders a little more in character and sometimes, you know what? It's like eight o'clock on a Friday night. I just need to tell these guys what to do. And there's this very brief, this is for me at this place, to you at that, wherever I think you are, because you haven't told me where you are. <laughs> and yeah, this is this is what I'm doing. This is what I want you to do. And so, that, was a, that was a big learning curve too, was just yeah. getting those regular dispatches of, of um, you know, updating them as to wh- where I was and what I was doing too. So they weren't, you know, so they had an idea. And then trying to get them to do the same to me, which sometimes happened, but a lot of times didn't. Yeah. You know? You had it easy, too, because you actually had interior lines of communication, while the French had exterior lines of communication, which means Mm. that uh, sometimes it would take a day, even two days, for a message from one end of the French um, advance to reach Napoleon, where yeah. it was, well, there, uh, was it pretty was crappy road, pretty crappy road between me and Ruchel. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like 
Especially as you started moving east, as the battle started pushing you east, uh, and it got longer and longer. <laughs> yeah, and then there were French in between, cutting me off apparently. So you know, well, whatever. Yeah. That's right. Davu was sitting across the line of communications for quite a while, and then Lane's got on, in on the action as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, so James, you and I had totally different experiences because you're trying to um, you're trying to manage a whole army. Whole army. I'm just trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And occasionally, occasionally, I, I bumped into another French corps commander. So on day thir- on, on the 13th of September in the game. I bumped into Augereau, uh, and this was near uh, Neustadt, and there was a big battle going on. Mm, yes, and uh, you know, I I just so my instinct was to was for Augereau and I to go north, um, but we were sent to go. We we were told to go south to uh, um, Schleitz. At least mm-hmm. I, and I was like, no, I want to go north. I want to Augereau and I could do this, like. You know, I just had this sense that there was this opportunity north and I should go north, but Napoleon was like, no, go south. And I was like, we, oui, mon emperor. Yeah. I, I, I tried to be really Davouish and that I, you know, he's like, my understanding of him is he was not a toady. He was a kind of bluff, plain spoken guy. So my responses to the emperor always, yes, my emperor, you know, yes, sir, I'll do this, blah, blah. And I, I didn't try to like, um, there was one point where Nate kind of got under my, my skin, <laughs> my nerve. <laughs> Well, they did that. Yeah, yeah. Where we actually did have a French council of war, and he tried to make it sound like he'd been he'd been the one who grabbed the the nice hotel, and uh, you know, <laughs> and I, I sort of said something like, "Well, you know, I'm I was more interested in fighting a war than trying to book a hotel room." But yes, sir, <laughs> it was great. That's the epic battle of Schleitz, which resulted in uh, Brunswick's Brunswick's heroic night march. Yeah, it was funny. Everyone inflated the battles because up until the final battle, all of the battles were just delaying actions where one division would hold up whoever was advancing down the road, whether it was the French side or the Prussian side. Yeah. But they would be reported back to the army commander as we fought this epic battle against. Yeah. Yeah. We won, yeah. Yeah, Ruko yeah. had me. Ruko had me thinking he's holding off, like, you know, three core tying down three cores of of French. I'm thinking, oh, hey, good for you, man. Like, <laughs> keep just keep as many Frenchmen busy as you can, and there's less for me to deal with. But mm-hmm. yeah, and that and that was the other thing. Like, you know, like it's like, okay, I found some Frenchmen. I'm going to attack, and then they just bugger off. And it's like, well, fuck, you know. Yeah, it's almost impossible to force someone to battle who doesn't want to fight. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, going down this road and they like, and it's like, yeah, you're just, he, he's just trying to pull, pull me apart so he can destroy me piecemeal, which is, which is what I then, you know, I kept that in my head for the rest of the campaign. Once I retreated back up and then got into Altenburg. So then when, when, you know, the Hohenlohe player, you know, brings his corp and they go, hooray, I'm concentrated. And then he just marches right through the camp and goes after whoever was on my Western flank. Was that you? That was was that you? Girl. It got to be you. No. Okay. I want to blame you. Um, and, I, and I was like, dude, they're just trying to pull us apart again. Don't do it. It's like, oh, off he goes. Do, 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 do. And it's like, and we got wiped out. Like, yeah. Stand. His army at that point had been marching for 48 hours. For two hours. days. Three and, days? Uh, yeah, they were. They were after probably... fighting the battle, 
yeah. a proper battle, not just a delaying action. They were tired. And, uh, they were exhausted. Yeah, I'm thinking, what are you doing? Yep, they yeah. folded in in six hours. That's three turns, um, and the force Ogero's force was half their size. Oh. The, the French are far better than the Prussians in the game stats because, of course, this is the army that had just won Austerlitz the year before. Yeah, in the camp of Boulogne the the year before that, so. Yeah, it's practically the best army still that the French ever had. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's tough to be a Prussian in, in that campaign for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. But um, the sad thing was if, if Hohenlohe had instead, what I thought you should do as the umpire. And of course it's easy for me to say, because I can see everything that's going on. So it's easy for me to make those second guesses. Saturday night quarterback, uh, what everyone's doing. Yeah. But uh, in my opinion, what should have been done with them is just they should have kept marching. They should have kept marching further behind the lines, somewhere where they could have gotten a day of rest, gotten their morale back up, and uh, then they would have been a fit fighting force again. But since since they went directly into combat again. They were doomed. I knew. I knew that that wasn't going to end well for him at all. Yeah. And unfortunately, Even that left you just... hanging out to dry because uh, you were outnumbered. And um, while you had a good position, you'd spent a lot of time entrenching and building redoubts and whatnot. That could only slow down the French. That's not oh, yeah. stop them. So, yeah, and then the Your one... army was pretty tired too. I mean, you'd had a day of rest, but. You'd also spent like a day and a half marching, and uh, yeah, yeah, but yeah, and that that's why, like, when when it cracked, it was like this that's it, the game's over. Yeah, so, like I could have taken my two reserve divisions and charged gloriously into you know the um into the okay. western flank in support of Blucher and maybe you know made a heroic painting, <laughs> uh, but it, w- it would have ended the same. With oh, yeah. a, with last a complete Prussian, <laughs> Prussian defeat. Yeah. The, uh, the funny thing was, is that everyone got fixated on fighting the battle and the French totally forgot that uh, one of the ways they could win the game was to cut your line of communications. And there was several times when there was French Corps that were out on the flank that could have kept marching down the road and gone to Leipzig. Mm. Yeah, if they took Leipzig, it was over for you. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, that, and that's why I was, I was constantly worried about that that one road up the east side of the um, map. I was thinking if if I was Napoleon, that's where I'd be I'd be sending somebody up that road. Yeah. And nothing. No, and that's why I think around um, uh, around September fourteenth, when I was in contact with Ajaro, like I said, all my instincts were just to keep going north. Um, cause I knew that the, the, the bulk of the French army was somewhere South of me. Um, but I had an intact core. I had really nobody in front of me. I had, uh, Augereau, you know, sort of close to me. I thought, you know, there's no real downside for me in just keeping pushing. Right. I could, I could cause more damage potentially going North, but I think no, Napoleon wanted to concentrate the army for the big decisive battle. And that's what happened. So, yeah. 
I thought it was going to happen at Schlegs, but uh, mm -hmm. the Prussians were so slippery, could not be pinned down. Slippery yeah. Prussians, that's my new band name. Um, I thought it was going to be over at Christmas, like our Christmas, <laughs> which is kind of funny because like everyone thinks their war is going to be over at Christmas, but uh, no, yeah. it ended up going on for six more months. <laughs> <laughs> which was just basically a couple of in game terms was a couple of days of me running up the road and catching my breath at Altenburg. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, Wendy, what would, what would a Prussian victory have looked like? Like what, 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 what how, yeah, how, how could I have won? Yeah. Well, yeah, I thought you were going to win. Um, when you when went the bounty on the Bernardo, um, he, he was running scared. He'd gotten, um surprised by you at Schleitz or Schlitz. And uh then he fell back to Salberg and Hohenlo came flying out of nowhere as he did this crazy cross-country march, which I he told me he wanted to do it. And I was like, You're crazy. You're never you're gonna try and cross country march. You'll be moving at one or two kilometers an hour, and they'll be long gone by the time you get there. But no, he caught them. He caught them in the flank and surprised the hell out of them and uh, sent him running back to Lobenstein. And by the time um, he got to Lobenstein, you were right on his tail again. Mm -hmm. uh, every time someone uh, fights a delaying action, the rear guard, they get to, uh, they have to basically take all the fire from the attacker and can't respond. But they get to make a free two-hour move. The uh, attacker then has to spend a, the next turn uh, reorganizing before they can get back on the on the on their way. So it just worked perfectly. Like you hit him, then Ho and Low hit him while you were reorganizing. Then you marched down the road, hit him again. Um, yeah, and I I thought this is and I was thinking this is our chance to destroy a French corps. We've got them on their own, and, and this is our chance. And then he, he got away in, into into the mountains. I was like, "Well, the chance is gone. We got to get the fuck back up the road." I think if you had have pushed him again, really in the morning, because uh, night fell and you were you were uh, sitting in Lobenstein, I think if you had to hit him in the morning, he probably would have kept running. That I don't know that for a fact, but that was just sort of the feeling I had. Mm -hmm. Um, which would have then let you turn around and attack uh, Sue, who was coming up from the south, and uh, Hohenlohe was tangling with him uh, the next day. Um, and they ended right. up defeating him and the guard combined. Mm -hmm. Now, the whole guard didn't go into the battle. Um, only the guard cavalry was committed because I wouldn't, release the guard i was controlling the guard because there was no guard player i expected napoleon to stick with the guard and control it himself but he didn't he, he stuck with marat hmm. and sent uh, the guard up the road with sue so i i figured that um the guard would not want to be used in any old battle like you know they're the yeah. they're the army reserve so I, I roll off on these things when stuff like this happens and just see what happens. But I put on modifiers, so there's more of a chance of what I think is going to 
be realistic happening than not. And this and this is where and this is when I sent half my army across country to to take the French in the flank to help Bowen low. And that's right. We almost got him again. Except yeah. things didn't quite work out and I'm retreating with only two divisions and Hohenlohe's got most of my army. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were in, Sch in Schlitz and Hohenlohe was just south of you. And yeah. then you showed up along with uh, Ogedro behind him. And uh, I thought that that was when it was going to be over. I thought, okay, this is going to be the big battle. This is where it's going to happen. Yeah. But uh, you guys were pretty much cut off. but. The funny thing about the French was they would they would run into you and then as soon anytime they ran into the Prussians, they would stop and they wouldn't attack. And then they would give you guys a chance to escape. And you invariably would. Yeah. Night fell, and once night falls, um, that was your opportunity to slip away and you took it. Uh you went up the the north road and uh, got away. Yeah, I think that I think I did that once. I I think I it was around the thirteenth or fourteenth. I had a I forget where, but I had a contact night, and I thought, okay, well, we'll just we'll just bivouac tonight and attack when we're rested in the morning, right? But yep, that know. was that was it. That was Brunswick. Yeah. And then I woke up. What do you mean they're gone? What do you mean they're are 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 you in an OTF? Hohenlo, meanwhile, does another one of his crazy cross country marches. That was the only place he had to go. I know. And I, I thought, okay, for sure, the French, because by this point, they'd all concentrated in, in Schlitz. Uh, Davu was there, Napoleon was there, uh, Ney was there, uh, Bernardo was there. The funny thing was, the whole battle with Sue, Bernardo was sitting like five kilometers away and did not come in. I kept dropping him hints. You can hear the sound of the guns. It's intensifying. Turn yeah. after turn after turn, yeah. all day long that battle went on. He's five kilometers away. He's sitting in Lobenstein, and he rested. He wanted to rest his troops, so he wouldn't let Ney go either. The two of them sat there. They could have <laughs> turned that battle, and the game would have ended. But oh. they sat there, rested their troops, did not march to the sound of the guns, and or two is getting beat up by this army of Prussians that's twice his size, barely escapes because the Prussian or the uh, old guard cavalry helps him out. And uh, he goes back south to Hof. Hohenlohe sets off across country. And I thought, okay, well, he's gonna be strung out on this cross country march all day. And uh, there's not a hope in hell of him getting away. This is gonna be the end of Hohenlohe. Homo, yeah. the homo player was incredibly daring and uh, very aggressive. Mm. And like nine times out of 10, that was to the Prussians' advantage. There was just that 10th time at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and it cost you everything. But, uh, but the French, they sat in Schlitz for <laughs> like four hours in the morning and let him get, get away. This he got like away. They started marching uh, down. Well, you know, we, we needed time for coffee and baguettes and a smoke. And... So, <laughs> so, so that's 
that's Creeksville for you, you know? It's like, yeah. and, and here's me as the umpire. I can see everything. I know what's going on. Like like in all war games we're used to, I'm the 10,000-foot general. I, yeah. I, I, it's easy for me to second-guess. But when you're playing, it's hard. It is so hard. Oh, and yeah. everyone is really cautious. Everyone is really cautious when they play, except for Hono, who was surprisingly yeah, one, and and as i was trying to say like um like i said to both of both of them it's like just you know as long as we stay alive we're in the game yeah yeah like so here's a little just running around the countryside yeah here's a little comment for me about where that caution comes from right so my i'm looking at my wendy the the uh, sent me for the very first turn so i've, I've moved about um I started the game in Bamberg. I was moving uh, north. Uh, I get uh, maybe, you know, halfway between Bamberg and Coburg on the first day. And my infantry divisions have taken one point of fatigue and my cavalry have taken two. Now, I didn't really, I didn't really appreciate, um, you know, how the, you'd explain it to us, but I didn't really appreciate the mechanics of the fatigue rules. But I thought to myself, oh, um, I've I'm starting to take fatigue hits and the and only in I'm only in turn one of the game. So I want to be cautious and make sure that I've got a, a, a force that's still combat effective by the time I bump into somebody, right? Um so I'm 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 not, you know, I I think I always tried to um make sure that I had an hour or two of daylight before. Uh if I wasn't in contact at the end of the day, my trips would bivouac and rest and like I wanted to have. Uh, I wanted to have an intact combat effective force. So I guess I wasn't as hard marching as I could have been. But, you know, that first sit rep <laughs> with those blue letters saying infantry one fatigue, cav two fatigue, I thought, oh, okay, I've got to be careful. <laughs> no. Yeah, fatigue is just the percentage of, uh, of your troops that are strung out on the march. They're the stragglers. Right. So really, that's only one in 2% of your entire core is. Yeah, behind you, you know, on the somewhere on the road to Bamberg, still. Yeah, I, th I think in the next time we play this, I, I I will be more aggressive to be sure. But Napoleon kept questioning my measuring of the Prussian um, yeah march rates because he would be like, "How can they be there? That's impossible. We do march faster than them, right?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, you march faster than." Yeah. Of course, what I didn't tell him is the fact that. The Prussians just march longer than you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, and and part of it was, you know, I was at, I was reading some of these, you know, stuff. It's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, like you, you you get up at four and you march for ten hours. Yeah. You know, and you get a you get a couple hours for a sunset to set your camp and make your coffee, and you know, so it's like, well, okay, 30, 30 mile march in a day, like, hmm. you know, so all right. I started framing my orders in that way and yeah hmm. it's, all, it's not a union job it's not like you're working nine to five yeah the funny thing is in the actual campaign napoleon's greatest fear was that the prussians would get down to the thuringian mountains and as the french were coming out those passes because there's basically like i don't have the map in front of you right now but i think there's like four or five yeah possible passes that the prussians would be waiting and would just chew up his cores, you know, when they couldn't support each other. 
Um, that's what I wanted to do. It's it, almost what happened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, like, like Ruhul had the right idea if he just stayed on our side of the mountains. Like the, the herring off over the mountains and messing around over in Menningen or wherever it was. Like if he just stayed on this side where he could have covered, you know, instead of letting that, he had that gap and, and the French got in between and cut off his lines of communication. Um, yeah. If he'd stayed on this, on, on the eastern side of the, the mountains, it would have been gone better for him, I think. Yeah, once once he was so far away from the rest of the army, um, he there wasn't much that he wasn't affecting anything anymore, and it was just a matter of time. Especially he um, he had a habit of keeping his divisions really far apart from each other. Mm-hmm. They couldn't support each other, and um, one by one they just got chewed up, and eventually. Um, he got crushed. It was, it was one division versus a whole corps, and and he stood and fought, and they disintegrated, and the pursuit wow. happened, and uh, they ran down the road into the other corps, or sorry, the other divisions eventually, and the pursuit just fell on them, and they were all tired, and crushed them one after the other, and that was on the last day of the game, anyway. Right? It so, was, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know. So, Wendy, I had a question about um, battles. Did you, uh, uh, when you resolved them, was it were you just uh, running numbers, or were you ever tempted to like set up some miniatures and, you know? No, no, yeah, I just it's just running numbers. Um, They're die rolls. Things it would be to play out a a game on the tabletop, and um, that's something that if I had a group of players in person, I might consider, but. Um, it would, I don't think it would be fair for me to play like a solo game. Um, yeah. It'd be too easy for me to favor one side or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think well, I- and, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the gritty tactical decisions you're making in a tabletop game were just really abstracted away. Yes. Like after, yeah. after the first, after the first battle, it was like, okay, that's how this works. And so when, you know, when Ho took off, to you know protect our flank it's like no dude we have three zones sure those french coming from gira they're just going to slide into our westernmost zone they might get a plus one for being on the flank but i've got fortifications on that flank too so whatever like you're like he was kind of overreacting to something that was abstracted out yeah and yeah i'm surprised you didn't catch that since you know, I had sent a flight to help him and it just showed up in his Western zone, right? Yep. So hmm. uh, that was kind of, you know, getting into the meta of the game or playing a little gamesmanship or something, but. No, that's you know. the way you're supposed to think because, I mean, it's, it is a game of generalship. It's not a game, you're not division commanders and brigade commanders. It's not a tactical game at all. It's, you're thinking big picture strategically, not, uh, not yeah, tactically. Anything, any maneuver element less than three divisions is kind of useless because That's you, can't, right. you can't cover the three zones. Is a division and um, a division by itself is just a speed bump. It's yeah. unless it's only fighting one or two divisions, it, um, it doesn't really stand a chance. Yeah. Like 
should be maneuvering at least three divisions around the map. So, yeah. But none of the players want to do that. <laughs> All the players, um, you know, the instinct is to spread your divisions out and try and cover all eventualities and stuff like that but uh mm. these are napoleonic divisions not 21st century divisions so they can't yeah. really operate by themselves yeah there was there was one time where i detached a division um and i forget where i but i, I felt bad about that i thought oh now i've got one division you know 10 miles away now i'm you know like I'm, I'm exposed. That that felt totally wrong to me. But yeah, so, if you want to send one out like yeah. that, to like be a speed bump to, to act as a rear guard and just slow down the enemy. Yeah, you know, there's a place for that. But yeah, if yeah. you're thinking like, oh, I'm going to send this guy around the flank and the other one around the other flank and yeah. hold them off in the center, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so, Wendy, what um, what have you got planned next? Or are you going to be running another one of these creek spills? I am. I'm actually going to be sending out briefings this weekend and orders of battle. Um, the next one is going to be my personal favorite campaign, or part of it anyway, uh, the 1809 campaign. Oh. oh. Yeah. My first army uh, in historical wargaming was an Austrian army. Oh, yeah. hooray. Because yeah. it was the only one left <laughs> in the group. No one wanted to be the Austrians. So I got saddled with the Austrians and I ended up really loving them. They're, it's they, such a great army. Yeah. They are a charming army. I, I, yeah, I've become very fond of the Austrians as well. Yeah. Um, no, I, did James and I say yes to this? I hope we both did. I thought I did. You both did, yeah. Yay. What? What, okay. the 9 were in that? Yeah. What? Oh, goody. And I know you're big on uh, the Bavarians because of your heritage, James. So I'm going to be making you in charge of the Bavarians. You'll be Lefebvre. Oh, dear. My goodness. Well, that's cool. <laughs> All the people who played on the French side last time are going to be on the Austrian side this time. Oh, okay. So they, can, they can have a taste of the other side being the army with the uh, disadvantages. Okay. And all the people who are on the Prussian side will be on the uh, are on the French side this time. I guess that means I'm Austrian, so that's cool. All right. Yes. All right. And I'm and I'm a and I'm a speed bump trying to stop the Austrian juggernaut until Napoleon arrives. <laughs> well, that'll be fun. That'll be something to talk about in uh, future episodes for sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, that's great. Thank you so much, Wendy, for um, telling us how a creep spill works and taking us behind the scenes. Um, and I hope, uh, I hope some of our listeners uh, kind of whetted your appetite to want to play in one of these. Mm -hmm. Well, are you, are you going to do follow up on those delightful animated maps? I am. I'm working the rest on the second day right now and um, okay. hopefully it'll be out by the weekend. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm going to put a link to uh, to them because uh, I won't have the I won't have this podcast uh, uploaded until probably Monday, so I'll put a link to uh, the first animation and the second ones up, and we'll put a um, um, so yeah we'll do that. Um, yeah, Wendy, I forgot to tell you um, in my before we we agreed to this, we had we have a custom that we ask of our guests where. Um, 
we ask for a couple of uh, books to be um, virtually donated to our digital uh, Canadian War Game podcast library. Um, uh, you can take a pass on that until the next time we we talk to you, or you can if if you just have a couple you want to that are dear. A couple actually. Yeah, I see you've got a whole pile of here. She looks at her giant bookshelf. Yeah. I just want to make sure I got the right titles. Okay. Ah, uh, bloody hell. Okay. Um, can't find them all, but um, one is going to be basically anything by Donald E. Graves. Uh, I'm big on the War of 1812, and he's written a whole bunch on the War of 1812. Um, one of my favorites is um, is uh, his first one. Um, uh, what was it called? Gray Jackets? Oh. Let's see the cover. Sorry. <laughs> I, used, I should have been better prepared here. I used to sell it in the bookstore. Redcoats and Grey Jackets, the Battle of Chippewa. That's the one, yeah. Right. Um, that one is a superb read. It's it's quite short, um, but it's a good get your taste buds wetted for some of his other ones, which are longer. Mm -hmm. um, that one is just fantastic. And then... Um, the other one is called Stopping the Panzers. Oh, yes, oh. yes. Um, Hopefully that one hasn't been added yet. No, it hasn't. Let's talk about it, though, Mike. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, that's a Canadian historian. I'm blanking on his Doug name. Doug Milner. Doug Milner. He's one of the Laurier um, uh, crowd. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it is excellent. And, um, you know, Canadians get a real short shift when it comes to uh, World War II and Normandy especially. But uh, he puts it in context to show how actually um, we won the war single-handed. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, uh, he puts it in context about how we had a very important job in D-Day. Um, yeah. And actually, we, we, uh, our job was to stop the, the Panzer divisions that were available. From from cutting off the uh, the beaches, uh, you know, there's that very important highway between Caen and Bayou, uh, and and we were supposed to keep that uh, protected, and uh, and they did. Yeah, and it, it gives weight to to the argument that th this was an actual, you know, plan on the part of Montgomery. I could some, you know, some Americans have said, oh, no, that just it just happened that way. And it's like, but if, you know, a, you know, one of the assault divisions is intentionally reinforced with extra anti-tank assets. Right. It gives weight to the fact that we were supposed to yeah, take on the Panzer divisions and and hold them while the Americans, you know, broke through and kicked them in the ass, which is patent. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah. And he makes the point that the part is basically 
I mean, I don't want to slag anybody, but the easiest half of Normandy, I mean, they're up against third-rate units, mostly. Um, you know, they have uh, all the armor, for the most part, in the north, and uh, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I would say that I'm Canadian, and I am a big Anglophile, so, <laughs> of course, my favorite is is up north, where... Yeah, it's certainly um, that that the whole ground of the Canadian role in Normandy has been fought over almost as much as uh, in the last twenty years as as the campaign itself. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I don't think they get enough credit. I think it's actually quite disgusting how uh, they've been treated by our own by our own historians as well. I mean, um, Stanley, who was the official historian, mm -hmm. he he acted or he wrote as if as if the Canadian army was a failure. <laughs> so, oh. hmm. you know, uh, you would think that anyway, when you read the official history, it's all, he, he doesn't have a lot of good to say about, hmm. about our, and, if, and I mean, the higher ups, that's always a issue with the Canadian military. I mean, they say the British are the lions led by donkeys, but <laughs> I think it's more the Canadians that, that should be saying that, I mean, when it comes to the generals in World War II, we had some really yeah. mediocre ones. It's, it's funny. There's a, exceptions. There's, there's a bunch of Canadians who hang around uh, the uh, the We Have Ways uh, podcast group. Um, and one of the things they really enjoy is when they get going on Simmons. Um, it's, uh, yeah, there's not a lot of love lost for him. <laughs> I, would, I would fit in well with them, I think, because I don't really like him much as no. me either. Really horrible, man. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, he well, um, yeah, he was he was a very unpleasant person, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was. Um, um, I mean, he was so identified with Montgomery. You know, he he copied Montgomery's mannerisms. He had a bad habit of sacking, um, uh, you know, subordinate commanders. Um, going back to. Uh, um, you know the Sicily campaign when he was a uh, division, first division commander. He, Montgomery actually um, told him, "You can't sack your brigade commanders in the middle of the battle. Don't do that again." <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So. Yeah. Well, and and, and you know, Carrar, unfortunately, you know, because he was kind of plotting and you know had his made sure his. T's were crossed and his eyes were dotted. That doesn't that doesn't capture the imagination. You know, we all love these. You know, people love the the rogue who just says, "Well, oh, let's just go do that," and yeah. runs off half cocked with no plan, and everything works great. Yeah, like um, Patton with they have one plan. Hey, diddle diddle, straight up the middle. That's what we're gonna do every single time. <laughs> you know, which worked. For him, yeah. most of the time. Most of the time. I mean, you know, when you know, when when you're when you're pursuing, no, no. but when you know, he's the guy to have when you're pursuing, you know, the broken German army across France. Yeah. Definitely. You yeah. know, like when he just says, "Go for the Rhine," and when you run out of gas, get out and walk. Yeah. Like, oh, that's pretty straightforward. I forget which. I think it was either uh, which general. It was either uh, folks. With two Fs or Volk, Volks that 
or Volks rather. Anyway, I always get them confused, but one, he said basically, if you told Canadian officers that they couldn't use the words fuck or frontal, <laughs> be able to either discuss tactics or have a social conversation. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Wendy, Wendy, it's been such a, a pleasure having you on our podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for uh, a really, really entertaining, gosh, almost a year of, of, uh, of gaming. Um, I was going to ask you just a final question. Um, uh, I think if anybody wanted to run a Kriegspiel, they had, they've got a lot of, um, uh, they have a lot of advice built into the last um, 90 minutes of our conversation, but sort of closing words of wisdom for anybody wanting to do this, wanting to put themselves in your role as the, the thousand foot general. Sure. It, it's actually not as hard as you think it's going to be. You don't need to know Clausewitz and, you know, Germany backwards and forwards or any of that. Um, if you've just read a little bit, uh, and you have kind of a basic idea of how things work. The rules will help you with the rest. And uh, Kriegspiel, as, as uh, a friend of mine likes to say, is the land of fudge. I mean, you uh, you can just sort of muddle your way through, and it'll it'll work out just fine. Mm -hmm. um, if you've ever played in a Dungeons and Dragons game, and you've ever been a game master, uh, you can do it. It, it takes exactly the same skills, exactly the same skills. It's mostly math. Mostly math. Oh, I was doing okay. So math hard. <laughs> Not, it's very simple math, adding and subtracting. That's okay. all you got to do. Oh, okay. I've got fingers, I guess. <laughs> okay. All right. Major. Come on. I was going to say, we're both English majors, Wendy. We're not good at this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I would not. I'm have a crewman, so, you know. Okay. Well, there's, there's, yeah, I, I was. I say I wouldn't be put in the artillery because they they need they need math. Yes. Yeah, they actually need that. No, I, I couldn't be in the navy either. Anyway, Wendy, thanks so much. We're going to uh, say goodnight to you, and James and I will finish up. So, um, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. And we look forward to uh, James and I look forward to crossing swords again. So that's right. Yeah, you dirty Bavarian pig. Ah. Okay. Horrible Austrian invader. Okay. All right. Good night, Wendy. Night. Night. Well, that was fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I hope uh, we haven't bored uh, our three remaining listeners, but. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, oh, for anyone who's still listening, I know you're you're going to try and explain that um, for any non-Canadian listeners. The yeah. RCDs are the Royal Canadian Dragoons. Yep. Our senior. Permanent Force Armored Regiment. They were formed December 23rd, 1883, same day as the Royal Canadian Regiment, the RCR. Mm -hmm. um, and then they argue over who is senior to each other. <laughs> yes. And then the Royal Canadian Horse Artillery just says, ah, we got you by a couple of years, go away. So um, that's who the RCDs. And then the, uh, she referenced the LSH, which is Lord Strathcona Horse which is our Western Armored Regiment, who were formed for World War I. Um, yes, I was going to say they were formed for the Boer War, but that's Oh, not... no, or were they? Were they Boer uh, War or World I, War I? No, it was I, World War I. I want to say the South African connection, but I could be wrong. It was, there were a lot of Boer War veterans. Yes, that's true. In the Lord South Congress. And they, um, well, no, it would have been the Kings. 
Okay. Yeah. Because because I, I I I thought for sure there was a Lord Strathcona horse that had the nickname the the Queen's Cowboys. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But someone has also said that's the Mounties. But mm. yeah, the Straths were formed during the reign of of George the Fifth. I don't know. Whatever. Our our next uh, our next podcast number twenty five. Whenever we do that, we'll, we'll argue about this. Well, I was going to say, I, I hope that our guest is going to be a, a relatively young Canadian Army officer uh, who's going to talk to us about um, professional wargaming and Canadian forces, but he is uh, a Strathcona. So. Oh, okay, so he can fill us in on all that. He can fill us in on all that, yeah. So Excellent. Yeah. So in our time remaining, why don't we just catch up on what we've been doing? And James, you've got to explain choir to me because I don't understand this is. Is this like turnip? Is this like that weird turnip stuff? Well, Turnip 28 is people kit bashing existing plastic figures in this weird, horrible world that's all like mud and fungus. Yes. Um, and they're scrabbling over root vegetables. Okay. Uh, I'm so disgusted. Yeah. Whereas Quar, um, Quar are little, they're, they're sentient um, anteaters. Okay. Invented by uh, Joshua tell portillary i'm sorry i'm mispronouncing your name joshua um and he's like he's he just started doodling these guys when he was 10 you know and he invented this whole world for them and initially they were like in his drawings they were like you know fighting stormtroopers and batman and godzilla um but then he made a whole world and factions and there's like history and 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 yeah so they're they're just these goof and they have kind of like um world war one um, interwar sort of technology, like they have internal combustion, they have aircraft, right. they have you know uh, airships and you know stuff. Um, and I remember like Lorenzo, friend, my friend Lorenzo, he showed them to me. Oh my goodness, um, years ago, mm-hmm. he bought like a the first little pack of Quar. He just you know bought them because they look cute. And then he never did anything with them, but he showed them to me. I said, these are really cool. These are just like the most fascinating little things because they're kind of like, you know, they're, they're, they're dumpy. You know, they got like, well, they're built like aardvark. So they got big guts and these long sort of yep. heads and, and snouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all look kind of sad. <laughs> um, and so, I just always been fascinated. And then War Games Atlantic has made a deal with Zombie Smith. That's who the this Joshua's company is named Zombie Smith. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's where you can go look for them. Um, and they're going to release a plastic set. And it's coming out at the end of the summer. And oh. so it's like, oh, hello. That's exciting. Because of course, you know, like they're kind of ex- they're they're more premium priced miniatures to get them in metal. Yeah. Um, which I've always kind of steered away from, always having to be a very frugal war gamer. Um, now that my mortgage is paid off, I can be a little more, you know, I only, I only think three times of buying something instead of six. Right. <laughs> um, but still, you know, the, pl- the plastic set coming, I was like, oh, this is exciting. And it should make it like very affordable. Yeah. Um, and then I've been also kind of kicking around, you know, it, February is the cruelest month because that's when the desire to kick around a new project rears its ugly head. And all my New Year's um, uh, 
what are those things you make on New Year's Eve? Resolution. Uh, resolution. All my New Year's resolutions to just paint what I've got, work down the lead pile, finish projects, finish armies, just goes right out the window in, in the February darkness, right? And it's like, I want to do a new project. And so I, I was kicking around World War One, Right. And then I'd realize, oh, 100 days, the trenches are broken. I could just buy some miniatures and I've got all this Western European terrain in 15 millimeter for World War II. I could do the 100 days in 15 millimeter. All over the, and so I'm looking at, you know, uh, oh, was it Peter Pig? And I'm looking at all well, the Flames of War, 15 millimeter stuff. You can't find it anymore. And the... Um, Plastic Soldier Company, 15 millimeter stuff you can't find anymore, except for some French tanks they still have in stock or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, and then I kind of remembered, oh, the Quar, and they're kind of World War One, and they're cute, and I could do like just sort of this fun, wacky thing, um, and kind of explore World War One tactics and organizations. You know, because who, who would they fight? Like, is there a other Quar? Other Quar. With different helmets, like <clears throat> yeah, um, there's two main. He's okay. He's he's either so enthused about Quar, or he's been so successful with Quar. He does them in all three scales. Okay, eight millimeter, fifteen millimeter, and six millimeter. Okay, mm -hmm. um, fifteen millimeter is actually the biggest uh, developed. Mm -hmm. He's got all kinds of different, you know, the different countries and like, you know, it, it, it's a world, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so like people. So there's different countries, there's different cultures, um, different styles of fighting. Uh, the, the main things, are, there's the royalists who are the, you know, conservative, you know, clan, tradition, ancestors, the first families running everything. And then there's the crusaders who are kind of like, um, socialist revolutionaries trying to overthrow the old order. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, they're, they're raising the banner of crusade to overthrow the first families and bring their ceaseless wars to an end by creating a bigger war. It's the paradox of the crusade, which mm -hmm. they argue about. Um, yeah, so those are the two main factions and there's different countries that are kind of lined up and some are neutral there are some that don't want royalists or crusaders. They'll fight. You can, you know, if you want to stay in canon, you can use them to fight either one. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. <clears throat> and um, so he's just done a 15 millimeter Kickstarter. So all kinds of new stuff coming out. And that's where all the tanks are. And then in 28 millimeter, uh, with the release of the plastic set, hopefully in a couple months, um, he's also going to release a bunch of new like personality figures and character figures. And hopefully we, um, with uh, 3D printing getting really good, then he will re-release uh, 28 millimeter size vehicles. Okay. Although, you know, as, as I sent you that STL for the Ford three-ton tank, which looks the spitting image of a Royalist um, light tank from... Well, not the spitting image, but very similar. Right. So I thought, you know what? Print it out at 190% and it'll probably just work perfect. I'll paint goofy camouflage on it. And, um, so yeah, that's Quar. Okay. Uh, Zombiesmith.com. And then there's also uh, the Riffler 
Com, which kind of gives you all the background and everything. Let me find the. Let me find the um. The uh. No mobile bookmarks. No. Where are my bookmarks? Um. Yes, the Riffler. Uh, R H Y F L E R dot com. Mm. And that's where you can get all of the, um, all of the, uh, he's all the background and a map of all in the world and stuff like that. Sorry, R H Y F L R E. Did I say that right? R H Y F F L E R dot com. Yeah. Yes, yeah, riffler.com. That's your yes. portal to, to the Quar home world. Mm -hmm. So, and there's a, there's a Quar Facebook group where people share their models and, and kit bashing your own vehicles is kind of baked right into the game. Okay. It sounds, it sounds amazingly cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I figure, you know, this way I can kind of like goof around and I don't have to worry about, you know, I don't know, that's the, um depressing realities of world war one you know if i try and do like oh this is the you know 80th canadian expeditionary force battalion or you know the rcr at at hill whatever it was and you know it's like oh, sad mm -hmm. um, yeah yeah so i'm trying to you know I'll probably make some trenches and goofy stuff like that so that's that's been absorbing a lot of my mental space. Yeah. And, you know, Lorenzo, Lorenzo kind of, you know, like sun, it was a Sunday morning and I'm sitting there in my pajamas watching something on TV and eating my bacon and egg sandwiches, which were very good. Uh, you know, doorbell rings. I'm like, what the fuck? Who's calling? You know, who's, who's ringing my doorbell at like, you know, nine on a Sunday morning? And it's Lorenzo. And he's going off on a road trip with, with his uh, partner, uh, Lynn. Yeah. And he says, Hey, here you go. And he hands me the bag of choir that he'd showed me like what 15 years ago. <laughs> that got me excited. And and he hadn't done any like they were in P like they weren't assembled or, or deflashed or anything. He just kind of looked at it. I'm not I don't know what to do with these. Um and so yeah, I had within a week I had them assembled and primed and painted them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. And good news too that Lorenzo's recovered from. Yeah, he he is. Yeah, he's moved around. He's still, you know, he yeah, got a limp, needs a cane sometimes, but yeah, he's yeah, yeah. This is a, a really wonderful guy who had a, a quite a devastating stroke about 15 years ago, and I think give or take around then, yeah, yeah, and has done really, really well. So, yeah, no, that's great. Um, it sounds like a real passion project, and I'm hoping so because I have a lot of them coming in the mail. <laughs> um, so, you know, they've been shipped. Mm -hmm. They should show. I, I, I'm going to start staking at the mailbox next Wednesday. That's when they hopefully arrive. Okay. You know, um, and other than that, I'm trying to like paint. I got some dwarves almost done and some Austrian landwear, sort of 75% that I kind of abandoned a few months ago because I know things. I just totally lost my painting mojo. Mm -hmm. so. It comes and goes, doesn't it? Yeah. It's picked up again. I'm doing um, 
all 18th century stuff right now. It's my eight millimeters. So I finished a regiment of Russian grenadiers recently from yes, stalwart looking fellows, lovely figures. And now I um, uh, I'm do, working on almost finished a, a unit of uh, um, Ottoman janissaries just because it's a, it's a it's a great opponent for 18th century Russians. Mm. And, and uh, yeah, the thing I like about janissaries about the Ottomans generally, you can just paint whatever crazy colors you want. Like I've got a command figure. He's got like five different layers of robes. These are all assault group figures, which are really, really nice. Oh, yes, they are. And, uh, you know, if I want to paint one layer of robes pink and with polka dots and the next layer white and the next layer, I don't know, violet, I can do that. It's Yeah, it's not like anybody's going to pull out an Osprey on, you know, yeah. Ottoman generals of the 18th century. Yeah, I mean, I suppose they, I know they do exist because I have one, but it's all like, whatever. Um, I'm, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great kind of, it's almost like an imagination's army. You can. Yeah, just, I mean, the, the, some of the, like the regiments of Janissaries are sort of color coded. I guess so. I'm like, you know, this regiment, they're all wearing green, green tunics and that regiment, they're all wearing yellow tunics. Like, but it wasn't like there was a, you know, it's not like the Prussians where everybody wore a blue tunic. Pretty much, yeah. And then maybe just little pink pom-poms for the certain regiments or whatever. Yeah, so that's that's the project I'm working on now. And then, but I haven't I haven't touched, I haven't put anything on the table or I haven't played head to head since hot lead. And I haven't uh oh my. I haven't okay. even, I'm I'm one up on you. Yeah, I haven't even thrown any dice solitaire. I've just been I've been busy. Um, I did, I just want to talk very quickly for those of uh, viewer or those listeners who are in the central Ontario area and my side of, on my side of um, uh, the province, which is up near South Georgian Bay. I made a, a trip recently to a place that our friend Joe Saunders told me about in Midland, Ontario, which is uh, kind of an hour north of Barrie. Um, near Penetanguishene, went to a hobby store there called Event Horizon, which is an amazing store. Um, they are a, uh, a sponsor of uh, Joe's uh, YouTube channel and lovely store, very, you know, it's like, it's it's very clever in that they they cover the waterfront. They've got collectibles, they've got plushies, they've got uh, a massive range of paints. Uh, they have, uh, I actually bought some of the uh, AK paints for the very first time. Okay. And I like them. Uh, they, they're, they're dropper bottle paints very much like the Vallejo style. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, I, I find Vallejo really aggravating because the flow is all like, sometimes it's just watery goo and then you have to dig around. You have to take the dropper, yeah. pop, dig around with a paintbrush and try to get out the solid paint. And, and and shake the shake the crap out of the bottle that you know the neighbors are wondering what's going on in your house. Yeah, yeah. Like wearing the dog and waking up your wife. Um, so the AK paints flow really nice. They're nice and thick. They've they've got good coverage. Um, so I like. They didn't shame the shame. Their advertising doesn't keep leaning into all the Nazi crap. But yeah, I I know I I'm aware of all of that. Um, I, you know. I, I, I didn't buy any, I, I bought a Napoleonic paint set that uh, when I was at Hot Lead just for fun. And I liked the colors. Uh, I liked the texture so much. I just, you know, bought 
like four different shades of gray and stuff when I was in. But anyway, Event Horizon, nice store. They also carry a full range of Warlord stuff. Hmm. Because I had a little bit of money in my pocket and I wanted to uh, support them, I uh, I bought two books, two of the hardback Warlord rules books uh, just to have for my library. Because I think everybody, um, one of the joys of the hobby is, you know, looking at rule books, right? So I bought, finally bought the latest edition of Black Powder. Okay. And uh, their Hail Caesar rules for ancients. Mm. I, I, loaned my, I loaned my copy of Hail Caesar to Dick way before COVID. Mm. probably contact him and get it back sure he has it but or well you know whatever yeah I've, I've slowly been doing ancients like uh, early imperial romans and germans right now yes you have and i thought you know like i need a i, I was trying to do um when i was thought i was retired last summer i was playing some clash of arms with some of the berry guys mm-hmm. which is really a skirmish game and but yeah you know, it's a fun skirmish game, but I thought, no, I really want a big battles thing. So I know some people play impetus. Some people play, um, um, you know, I tried uh, the Lardy Ancients rules. Infamy? Infamy. Um, I Honestly, I thought they were okay, but it just felt like sharp practice. Um, well, and there's enough, there's enough differences that it gets confusing. Yeah, if you yeah. play sharp practice a lot, and then you try and switch gears into infamy, infamy. It's like there's a couple of things that are very different. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not like it's not it's not like the progression from say you know dragon rampant, land rampant, second edition, Zenith rampant. Yeah. Where it's just sort of okay, we've just added some things on mm-hmm. and changed a few little things, but yeah, yeah it's it's and. I don't know if I, if I want to just do something like a sort of big skirmish, um, I'll just play line rampant. I mean, there are people have come out with ancients mods for line rampant and they're fine. They it's work great. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I think really all I do with them when I, when I look at those two books, um, uh, hail Caesar and black powder is mostly just look at the pretty pictures. They have pretty pictures. And unfortunately, I, I find the pretty pictures sort of get in the way of the flow of the rules. Mm. You have to kind of, but anyway, they're 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 fun to have on my shelf. I have no intelligent comments to say about what they're like to play, but uh, they, they are a very big battle game. Yeah. Like you need to you need to have your army organized into like wings. Right. Right. Because you, you need to have and your wings need to have like subunits to maneuver around. So it's um, you got to like even even if you're using very small units, mm-hmm. you have to have a lot of units for Black Powder or Hail Caesar. Yeah, which you know if you've got big armies, mm-hmm. you know you can you can have a fast moving game. Like you know we we've had um, you know Mike Barrett, we had all his 15 mil ACW stuff out, and you know we we play we played Black we've we've enjoyed Black Powder with them, and yeah we we did like a lot of moving and shooting and like played a game in like three, four hours. Yeah. That's good. So, you know, it's, it's good for that. Yeah. Like they're, they're both rules are really good for that. Like they just, they just move along. Um, You know, hail Caesar being an extension of the war master ancients. Yeah. So, So all of that is a little plug for Event Horizon in Midland, Ontario. It's a nice day trip. Um, there's a great uh, outdoor uh, patio on the water in the harbor. The bakery. Um, can, I get, can I get pastries with tea? 
there's probably one somewhere, but yeah. yeah it's a tourist town on the lake. It's not our pub. Um, and they've got a great range of stuff. And then the, the owner and his uh, his crew are really, really friendly. So I highly recommend uh, a trip to Midland. And, you know, and it's neat to find a store that actually has some historical stuff in it. Yeah, yeah. Because people are, oh, there's a hobby store there. And, I'm, I, and my reaction was just like, eh, shrug. Yeah. Because you know, it's, it's going to be, you know, like, it, it's going to be a wall of 40K mm-hmm. and a shelf of D&D and a case of magic gathering cards and some paints which you know okay if they've got some paints some brushes that i need cool yeah but you know usually there's nothing there for me so i just kind of yeah whatever you know. yeah yeah well i would say they have you know that too and i honestly if you're running a bricks and mortar store you've got to diversify i think so oh oh yeah if, if i was running a if i was running a brick and mortar hobby store i'd be yeah, it's like there'd be a wall of 40k and there'd be a wall of Magic the Gathering and and you know I would have a staff member your job is to you know open random packs and find the expensive cards and mark them up. <laughs> so I can pay the rent off of this 4 foot case of Magic Gathering cards mm-hmm. and you know that'll support all the other stuff then it's like oh and then there's this one little one little section of historical miniatures for whatever it is I'm interested in at the moment. <laughs> You know, um, and I, I get it. Like, I totally get it. And and I get that, you know, that's why, you know, stores, you know, aren't interested in coming out to, you know, hot lead or canned games and having a booth because why? You know, you, you know, it's not like the old days where there were a lot of third party vendors. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, oh, that store. And they're the guys who bring in, you know, like when, when Cross Swords, you know, they were the guys who brought in Essex. North Bay Hobbies were the guys that brought in the Perrys. Yes, yeah. You know? And that was exciting. And people, you know, so when they set up a booth, people were like, poof, jump on them. Um, but now with, you know, internet sales, it's easier to just order direct from Nottingham. That's true. Yeah. And it's kind of killed all that. Yeah. Although, you know, postage, like ever since COVID, postage is just really tanked. Mm. And with the increase in postal costs, uh you know maybe maybe there will will be a rise in small guys that's like, yeah, my retirement gig yeah you know i've i've invested a chunk of my pension in buying some stock and in, they're incurring my wife's glare <laughs> and i'm going to go to i'm going to go to hobby shows and sell it because people don't want to mail order they want to look at the models and you know um there maybe that'll be a wiggle room for people i mean you know because like um you know, Lee Van Shake's doing okay with Crucible Crush. He yeah. sells. He probably sells more third-party stuff than he does of his own. You know, um, figures. You know, the ten sixty-six line and the other things he does with Bob Merch over Pulp Figures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an interesting. I mean, that's an interesting um, symbiosis between a a sculptor and a, a reseller, right? Like they've. they've yeah, got- they're, yeah. They're kind of got all three going on. And I noticed Bob's uh, got a Kickstarter coming up for his. Um, sort of fantasy imperial uh, british imperial stuff hmm. uh i i saw something on the internet the other day about that and I'm, I'm not able to speak knowledgeably about it but bob's been really busy and if i did 28 millimeter um medievals i would sure look at his 1066 line but that's i i spent about a hundred dollars um at hot lead buying some stuff which are all still in their packages yes <laughs> Like, don't 
you know, I keep telling myself, I'm not going to do that. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I got some, you know, ladies in court dress and I got um, a lovely uh, string of baggage horses with a guy pulling them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I'm a big believer in every army should have a B echelon. Yes. You know, so I, you know, when I actually, that, that is a game I, that is a game I had. Um, so I went up on you. Uh, the Hobbits that I painted for Thistle and Rose. I did a solo game and, and, you know, it's like, ah, it works with, you know, baggage trying to escape the shark. And I had my medieval baggage out and I was looking at it and wow, I really need to refurbish these models. So who won that battle, by the way? Oh, the Hobbits. Good. The Hobbits, yes. The, the, uh, it's up on my blog. Um, and, um, yes, the, the, uh, it was, it was a, it was a, hard fought victory there will be there will be many an empty seat uh in the in the pub mm. you know um but the the orcs did not escape with all their ill-gotten loot mm-hmm. and they actually the orc column was like totally destroyed it was kind of embarrassing um, like the first uh, russian push at kiev newer yeah never very few came home. Good. Yes. That's how it should be. So that's on my blog, The Battle of Picklethorn Farm. Okay, I'll have to read. I'll have to read. And I, I re I repurposed my um my 15 millimeter uh central German buildings. Yes. Uh, <laughs> for it. And I thought they, they looked great, like they scaled perfectly with my hobbits. Yeah, yeah. Um you know, it's like their faller faller rail, HO railroad kits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, the, so like the hobbits are basically HO scale, like they're 172 scale people. Um, yeah, so they, they, they fit in well. And, and if you look at Tolkien's drawings of the Shire, not every hobbit lives in a hole. No, that's true. They, it actually looks like, you know, the Midlands. Yeah, little village. Yeah, you know, there, there, there's, you know, walled farms and roofs and houses and stuff. So, I mean, they're, you know, the, the mill is the only two-story building in town, but, and, um, yeah, I played another game. Dan brought his Xenos Rampant stuff down and we played that and that was fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that's something I, I can talk about a little bit. I have, I did buy my own copy of Xenos. Oh, good job. I did. Um, I was really, really favorably impressed by it. I thought it was worth the money. Um, mm-hmm. And it helps, you know, the, the, anybody like us who's played Mersey rules for a long time, and you and I have played a lot of Dragon Rampant, and you've played a lot of Line Rampant. It's it's easy peasy, right? The the biggest yeah. the biggest questions are how do you um, how do you build your units, and which skills and Xeno skills do you choose? Um, but that's a lot of fun. It's there's kind of a list building aspect to it. Yeah, which is which for a lot of people is is half of half of the enjoyment is you know it's something you can do at work. Yeah. Play, yeah, play with lists, play with stuff in your head. Um, I basically for my three, you know, for my um, expanse theme, fifteen millimeter stuff um, for each side, you know, Mars, Earth, and the Belters. I just kind of did. I've done an army list for okay. This is you know this Martian fire team has you know these stats, and I've pointed it all out and figured it out, and you know, so yeah. I've done the same and so that way because I made some 
I made some drones out of just like random pieces of garbage. Yeah. I think I I think I showed them on the camera last yeah, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So figuring them out, I've got them all figured out. Here's how much a swarm of drones costs. So, you know. yeah. And I did a similar thing with um, my uh, my 50 millimeter Curus and Tigrids, which are my um, space kitties of doom. Yeah, they're my Kazinti proxies. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, what does Larry Nevin say about the Kazinti? Well, they're fanatical. They're like Japanese Banzai charge troops, right? So they, they, they're not like uh, you wouldn't want them to. Like I suppose you could put them in like a long range firefight, but that's not canon, right? They're so I gave them like the close combat Xenos uh, or the close combat skill, and gave them the fast move skill from, which is one of the Xenos skills, and yeah. Well, they're like, you know, they're they're going to run right at you and they're like fast zombies. You got to shoot them faster. Yeah. And, and you can do you can figure it's up for those, those neat little um, jet bikey things. Yeah. 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 Hover, they're hover vehicles, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, you could just make them, um, you know, treat them like berserk infantry with with, yeah. um, you know, mobility added. Yeah, and that's basically all they are is they're like they're like dragon rampant berserkers, you know, they're yeah. just the same sort of thing. So high marks for Xeno Ramp, and I'm I have some uh SF stuff on my painting bench right now, and that's something I when I get tired of Ottomans, I working on that a bit. And I have I, I uh finished a couple of years back. Rico had you know, one time we were gotten together again, hey, here you go. And it's like this little little Ziploc baggie with some traveler figures in it. I was like, oh cool, you know, and I put them away simply safe and lost them. Oh no. And so then when I was like digging this all I was like, oh where are those figures? Where are those figures? I'm ripping through my my bits box and everything. And then then finally I did find them. And so I've got them cleaned up, painted, they're added to my belter force. So the belters have two more fire teams. Yay. Cool. Cool. Um, before we wrap up, why don't we just look ahead for the next few months? Um, I'm summer. Yeah, we're in the summer. <laughs> There's nothing really on the games calendar until KegsCon in September, I think. Yes. Um, and then we have, yeah, and then October, I think it's a Lardy Day. Yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, the next Lardy Day. There wasn't one this spring, was there? No. No, if my calendar is correct, find my calendar. What would we do with what did we do before cell phones? Eh? Um, yeah, KegsCon is 23, 24 of September, okay. and Lar Day is 28 of August. 28 August, or, sorry, not August, correct as you were 28 of October. Okay, October. Jesus, that's a Saturday, I think, right? Yes, and Keg's gone is 23, 20, or to 23rd of September. Okay. In, after, I might I might be tasked to go to a conference that that um, weekend, so I don't know whether I can make it or not. Okay. I'm, I'd like to make it to uh, Lardy. Um, probably all I can commit to right now. Joy and I are heading off to Ireland in July. Oh, second half of July. We're hoping say hi to say hi to Conrad for me. Yeah, we're hoping to meet up with him and have a uh, Napoleonic game, and he and I might go visit the Boyne. Oh. And then, uh, we're going to make it over to 
couple of days in England before we fly back. So we're hoping to go to York, Liverpool. Mm. I want to go to the, um, we have a couple of nights in Liverpool and I want to go to the Western Approaches Museum because the okay. Battle of the Atlantic is something I'm quite interested in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then York Cathedral is probably a must see. And yeah. So cool. yeah, that's, um, that's the, I guess the big thing. So hopefully folks, we will do another one of these uh, in August and um, like, yeah, so it's kind of a three month interval since the last one, but you know what, you don't, you don't pay for these, you get them for free and you get them when we do them. <laughs> That's right. Actually, somebody said something really sweet about our podcast, James, on Twitter. I forget who it was. Maybe you know them, but they said they were at a uh, Canadian um they were, uh, they were Canadian, obviously, and they went to a, a cadets parade and they were playing the cadet march pass and they, they went, oh, they're playing the theme to the Canadian Wargamer podcast. <laughs> so I thought, oh, that was cool. Those <laughs> are opening music. Right? Well, you know, we, we, we ended the training year with a uh, mess dinner. Yeah. And this this time we actually managed to pull off, you know, all the mess traditions and the squadron, you know, stood up a band in September and they've gotten very proficient. Oh. So there was, there was an ensemble that played the marches. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I only knew to stand up for the CIC march because of the podcast. <laughs> Oh, that's so, great. And then, you know, like there's a, there's a, uh, one of the parents is a former CIC member and she's like, oh, geez, that's ours. <laughs> I got to stand up. <laughs> um, that was cute. We, uh, we're done because uh, it's almost bedtime for me. I yeah. forgot to ask Wendy what she wanted to play. So I'm guessing we should play some um, uh, Napoleonic um, music. Not the, Royal, not the Royal Canadian Dragoons March Past? Well, you know what? We we should do the RCD March Pass because it's Canadian, and she's uh, so I'll dig that. Yeah, I'll dig that up. That's a great suggestion. So I'll dig that up, and we'll play that as our play up. Um, okay. So thanks very much, folks, for listening. Uh, hope you found yes. this brief spiels are fun. That is our big takeaway. And That's right. We look forward to telling you more about the next one. Um, what else can we say? Thank you for listening. I, uh, yes. Yes, it's funny because we never ask you for money. Just give money to an animal shelter and that'll make us happy. That's right. That's right. right. Okay. So it's vote good. early, vote often. Bye-bye, bye bonds. Okay. So it's good night for me. And good night for me. All right. Thanks, everybody. God bless. Okay.